British Columbia is rich with people of legendary status, people who looked the hardships of life in the eye and stared them down. Along the way, the tales of their seemingly impossible feats became folklore. In other words, they are larger than life. Carol Taylor, a legend in her own right, set out to document BC's living legends. She says, I wanted to ensure we recognized and preserved the stories of these extraordinary women and men from them. I wanted to capture their personalities, their drive, their enthusiasms, and their great devotions. Artists, business and social advocates, environmentalists, along with others like Doug and Diane Clement, who convinced us to get off the couch and move. Ratna and Aaron Stevens, who guided us to consuming organic food, and Chief Dr. Robert Joseph, who showed us the path to reconciliation. And Jody Wilson-Raybould, who showed us what courage looks like when standing up to a prime minister. Taylor says, I focused on 26 extraordinary people who've contributed to our province and their reach has been global. These are the people Teddy Roosevelt was talking about whose faces are marred by dust and sweat and blood, people who err, who come up short time and again. Jimmy Patterson, Brant Louie, Dempsey Bob, and Joe Siegel are just a few of the legends she sits down with this fall. I invited the host of BC Legends with Carol Taylor to join me for a conversation that matters about why preserving the stories of our legends is a gift to future generations and future legends. Carol, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. What inspired you to say, yes, we have to capture these stories? It was actually a very personal story. It was um, about a friend who was a BC artist, well-known, and uh, he would talk about coming back from the war, this is Gordon Smith, and with Jack Shadbolt, and they had no money, and they'd built each other's houses, and along would come Emily Carr, and so the stories were so rich. And I wanted to really talk and share those stories, but then he died. I mean, it shouldn't have been a surprise, he was 100 years old. But honestly, I was so mad at myself that I hadn't ever captured the stories, that it led to me and us talking about how you can really tell stories, people's personal stories, because anyone, not anyone, but people can do documentaries, but it's not in their own voice. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get that voice while you can? And so it led to this journey, an extraordinary journey and privilege to look uh, open the curtains and see behind people's stories and really what drove them, what they were thinking, how they were feeling. Uh, that's not captured usually in a documentary. No, it's not because you don't get to spend time with that person and allow them to, you know, I guess open up on, on camera so that you can see nuanced things that they aren't even saying, but you're learning something about them. Were there uh, some, you know, really interesting surprises along the way? I think everyone had a surprise in one way or another. I think of Rick Hansen, of course, and we all know his surface story. I mean, a huge story, wonderful success. But when he talked about that moment when he is a young teenager, athletic teenager, was told by his doctor because of a car accident that he'd never walk again, and what that meant to him, what he was thinking. And he told very graphically the story when he was first in hospital and on his stomach and unfortunately vomited, but couldn't turn over and kept calling for the nurse and calling for the nurse and no one came. And finally, after a couple of hours, somebody came and turned him over and he said that was, I mean, obviously, 
the darkest moment of his life. And at that point, you've got a choice. And he f expresses it that way, that you have a choice. How, how am I going to deal with this, right? Well, so is that one of the interesting elements that you see in these people that you've identified is that they have choices, that there are pivotal intersections of their lives where they can either succumb to the pressures or challenges that they're facing or find a way around them. Is that part of what makes them legendary? Yes, and I think that's one of the learnings. And also that nothing towards success is a smooth line. I don't think there was one person that we spoke to that could say, oh yes, everything was fine. I was a little kid and I'm a perfect adult and great success. There was always a setback. There was always a failure. There were some risks that didn't turn out. Uh, sometimes, like with Rick Hansen or uh, Lieutenant Governor Iona Campagnola, it's a physical injury. Like there are things that do occur in our lives, but in each one of them, where did they get that courage to turn it around? Where did they get that drive or that belief that something could be better? For instance, when you mentioned in the intro, Chief Robert Joseph, I mean, he, as a little kid, he's put in, in the residential school, treated really badly. I mean, he tells the story of one of his first breakfasts there and he's served porridge and he looks down and there are th things moving in the porridge like obviously bugs of some sort, and he still has to, to eat, and there was all kinds of abuse. He said that within two years, he could have been let out and gone home at the age of eight or nine. He, he would have been destroyed anyway. He stayed there longer, but it didn't matter. He was already destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so you come out, and he hit bottom, became an alcoholic, lost jobs, family, and at some point, through some kind of miracle, turn that around to the point he's now the face of Reconciliation Canada. And he, his demeanor is so um, kind and understanding and loving and it, there's none of that bitterness and I, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And those are the stories that we want to tell. I gotta get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So how does that serve as an example to someone else who may be facing hardship? They come across this interview with Chief Dr. Robert Joseph and go, oh, okay, is it the words that he says, is it the way that he delivers it, is it something about him that you felt was so important that could be an inspirational moment for someone even now or maybe into the future? Well, I think part of it is the story that he managed to do it. And so that's an example, a role model. But it was his essence. <laughs> there was just something about the man that sort of exuded this belief, almost happiness. And to think of somebody turning around their life in that way. Uh, another example, Brent Louis, for instance, um, very famous family, of course, London Drugs, billionaire, huge success. But he spent a lot of time talking about his family history, like three generations of Chinese Canadians who were not accepted as Canadian citizens. And in fact, he was born third generation in Canada, but was not a Canadian citizen because he was born before 1947, when Canada finally recognized him. And he said something his father said sticks with him every day. He says, um, 
I will forgive, but I will not forget. Mm. I will not forget. And so I think that that is another approach to how you take the things that have happened that were not fair. I mean, Brant Louie's parents graduated from UBC, but they weren't allowed to study law or medicine. There were whole categories that a Chinese citizen, technically, but not legally, uh, weren't allowed to study. So how do you take that, take it inside? Brant Louie, when he graduated finally from UBC in accounting, knew that the big law firm would never hire him, even then, in the 60s. And so that history of racism and discrimination is a big part of who he is, and it drove him in his business. So I think that these stories, when people listen to them, will find some kernel of something that relates to their own life and say, or if you're going through a bad time, to know that uh, just about everybody has those periods where it's really down and tough, and uh, we've all had it, and you don't know if you're gonna come out the other side. But I think it helps to hear people you've looked up to say, you know what, we're all vulnerable. I know that you've got Chip Wilson. Um, was it surprising to learn about him, the kind of person he is, versus the press that he has been given? And that difference is dramatic. And that's what we've all got to remember when we look at public figures. We're seeing one side of some story. And Chip Wilson was a huge surprise because I guess, you know, from the public, I knew him as a big, strong, athletic guy who did snowboarding things. And then he, he started Lululemon, designed it, built it, became a billionaire. Like, that's a pretty, pretty big story. <laughs> and then when you start looking behind the scenes, well, when he was 27 years old, had just finished doing an Ironman, like he is a tough guy, uh, his doctor tells him he's got a form of muscular dystrophy. And you go, like, what? Like, what does that mean to my life? And when he talked to us about it, he said, in fact, for a lot of years, it didn't make any difference. But in the last year, it's, it's, a, it's a wasting of your muscles. And he said, it's really starting to play. And so he's starting to have trouble walking. And he's, you know, he realizes how this is now shaping his life. And he said, you know, if there isn't some sort of scientific discovery, he'll certainly be in a wheelchair within five years. So he's someone who has taken so much of his money. He's always been a big philanthropist, buying land and giving it back to the province for, for conservation. But now he's pouring millions into this particular area of scientific research, hoping that somehow it might help find a cure, if not for him, but for somebody coming along in the future. And so you start to see the vulnerability, and he also talked about being head of Lululemon. That's, you know, that's pretty big stuff. And all of a sudden his board decides we're kicking out. His own company, he built it, he designed it, he, everything, and they just, weren't happy with his leadership and out he went. And he talked about how really hurtful that was and how it affected him personally in his personal life and, and in self, he lost self-confidence, but then managed to pick himself up. And even though he says to this day, he, doesn't, he thinks Lululemon has lost its soul. <laughs> that's a big statement. That's pretty harsh. Uh, but he's picked himself up and he's found a new route for his life. So uh, I, I'm just mesmerized by these stories. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment.
The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So one of the other interesting people, unfortunately we lost him just recently, was Joe Siegel. Um, you know, and Joe, I remember at one time uh, talking about feeling what was important to him wasn't like the success in life, but the, that he felt like he was contributing back to society. Did you get that sense of him that, you know, he wanted his life to stand for more than just, here I am, a successful business person? Absolutely. And I believe he was 97 when he, he passed, and right to the end he was still talking about other deals and, and uh, various philanthropic issues that uh, involved him. I mean, he gave so much time as well as money to SFU, being chancellor and and on the board. I think that that's something we have to remember. When people give back, it's not just about money. When you give back time and volunteer and support, oh, that's, that's so precious. But Joe also told us some funny stories. Well, maybe at the time they were- Share one, share one. <laughs> <laughs> they, they probably weren't funny to him at the time. But uh, at 14, he left home. And his father had passed, and for whatever reason, he thought, I'm going out on my own, and heard that they were building the Alaska Highway, and money to be made, and off he went. And indeed, he made a lot of money for that time. Uh, he made $4,000. And so he was so excited, and he decided to go to Calgary to visit a friend, a female friend, <laughs> got sidetracked, and got into a poker game, and lost it all. Now, this is a young person with, at this point, no money, no place to sleep, and what to do. And so it was during the war. So he went, and there was a Navy recruiting office, and he knocked on the door and said, I want to volunteer. And they said, well, great, terrific, we'll be in touch in two weeks. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I have nothing to eat today. I've got no place to sleep tonight. And they said, oh, go down a couple of blocks to the Army. And they took him in, off he went to war. But those stories of ups and downs happened with every person we talked to at some point. And so when he came back to the war, he had to build a life and he did it. He sold army surplus paint and he went door to door. But uh, there's a drive always. I remember Jimmy Patterson saying, you gotta wanna. Like you gotta wanna. He said it over and over again that somewhere inside of yourself, you got to want to. Yeah. You did not stay just with people who were business successes. You moved into people who uh, tremendous contributions from uh, the work that they did uh, around uh, health research. I'm thinking about Dr. Julio Montana. Uh, when you think about him and the contribution that he's made, it's, it's not just Vancouver or British Columbia. The reach is global. Yeah. What a lovely man. And you know, we'd all like to make a difference, but he's literally saved millions of lives around the world, but out of the base at British Columbia St. Paul's Hospital. And he was the doctor that led the team that early on identified all of these, especially young men, not so exclusively, but often young men coming in with this. They were healthy, strong, and had terrible disease that no one could figure out what it was, and they were dying awful, awful deaths. And he started to put some ideas from, in part from his father back in Argentina and experiments he'd been doing with tuberculosis, but put together new ideas and came up with this triple therapy that really 
not only save lives and give them quality of life back, but prevents, in many cases, the transmission. And here's a man, his, as I mentioned, his father was a physician, a lung physician in Argentina, and Julio wanted to be like his father, and he was going to be a lung physician. And as he's getting ready to go to med school, his father, who was also dean of a medical school, says, uh, Julio, uh, I don't think you should do this. I think you're not good enough. You might embarrass me. Now, we all can have excuses in life, but if you've got a parent that tells you, uh-uh, and yet you still stand up and say, well, I'm going to do it. And boy, did he do it. I, I just, um, I'm overwhelmed by that courage. It's extraordinary. You know, um, you have also identified some people that they would go, well, I don't know who that is, what makes them legendary. For a lot of people, they might look at uh, one of the names on your list, Dempsey Bob, and say, okay, what is it about this man that makes him legendary? Talent. Talent like you cannot believe. Uh, he, of course, is a First Nations artist from Northwestern BC, but if you have a chance ever to see his art in person, you can't help but be uh, moved, overwhelmed, uh, makes you think differently about art, it makes you think differently about First Nations, it makes you think differently about culture. And isn't that what legends often do? They wake you up and you go, well, that's something I didn't know, or that's somebody I didn't know. And then you go and you search them out. Hopefully people will search further on the various legends we profile and find out more about the, their life stories. But someone like Dempsey Bob is just um, unsettling because he's so brilliant. Unsettling. Unsettling. You can't sit back and say, oh yeah, I know all about art. Or I you don't when you see some of his work. You realize how little you know. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Isn't that extraordinary? Absolutely extraordinary. Um, I can't help but sort of go over the list in my mind. You have Ujol Dosange. Uh, why? Uh, why Ujol and let's say not another former premier? Well, I think the fact that he was South Asian breaking barriers is an important part of it because all of the people who were first at things, it's not easy. It's always harder, no matter if they end up successful or not. And for him to go into politics, first of all, is... Um, well, we should talk about why so many of our legends don't want to go into politics. But it's Yeah, hardly hard. any of them do. I know, it's a hard road. And he had beliefs that he felt were important to express. And in expressing them, of course, one of the things he did was come out against the violence within a certain segment of his community. And he spoke against it, and as a result was beaten up and feels lucky to be alive. I mean, he was severely beaten up. And yet he came out right after that and said, it's not going to stop me. I will continue to speak truth as he knew it and stand up for my principles. And he became, of course, a major cabinet minister, attorney general, uh, premier for a short time, and then went on to federal politics. But all along the way, he said there were certain groups that were always threatening him. 
he and his family lived under these threats, and he was brave enough to stand up and do his job and say what he believed was right. Uh, that, that is not easy. So there's a bunch of people who didn't make your list. What was it about the people that you chose from uh, not only the work that they did, but their character as well that made you say, these are the people that I want to focus on for now, and if the project gets expanded, then we'll look at others. But, but what were uh, you know, the elements of each of these people that made you say, this is someone that I want to make sure that we preserve their story? Complexity. Because it wasn't, uh, well, simply this was a top business person, or this was a great politician, or you know, any of the categories that we looked at. But it was also people who had done other things as well that benefited the community of British Columbia or changed the direction of British Columbia. So it was the complexity of being philanthropic in some instances, volunteering in others, um, their voice on issues like Brant Louis's voice, for instance, on racism, that really have helped shape who we are as British Columbians. So it was the complexity. It wasn't, none of these people are simple. Well, uh, I find it very interesting that you talked to both David Suzuki and Patrick Moore, who are both what we would consider to be in the environmental movement. And for some, they would go, you did what? Why these two different opposing, uh, you know, iconic figures in the discussion around environment? Well, we're trying to be just a little bit as brave as the people we're interviewing. <laughs> and that means trying to see all sides. And it doesn't mean that I agree personally with one side or another, but I'm curious, like I wanna know, what, what were you thinking? David Suzuki talked about really some self-examination right now was all of the demonstrations, were they really worth it? Because they did the war in the woods to save old growth forests decades ago. He said, well, we did it. We thought we had won. Uh, he mentioned various uh, hydro projects that they were concerned about, and we stopped them. And now he says some of those projects are going ahead. We're back with the war in the woods with Ferry Creek. He said, did it make any difference at all? Now that's a pretty profound question to be asking yourself. He's mid-80s at this point, and he also calls, says that he's in the, the death zone. <laughs> Yeah. I said, what? That, yeah. that's, a, that's a little difficult to say. He said, anybody in their mid-80s, if you don't know you're in the death zone, you better think again. Patrick Moore, on the other hand, has a completely different take on all these environmental issues. So it's important for me, for us as a community, to be open to both sides and not be in our little channel that we think we've got all the answers. So where to from here? I don't pretend that these are the only 26 people. This is, this is a good first cut. Well, I'm really glad that you're doing this and look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. Thank you.